I think that it's important to supplement beyond our food just because of, if for no other reason, the argument you could make is that we have such a polluted world today with our soil, our water, our air not being what it was, well, certainly before the Industrial Revolution and definitely before the turn of the 20th century when we started using so many chemical inputs and then later when we started genetically modifying our crops. And now we have plants that are inferior nutritionally from what they were 100 years ago. So I think there are several arguments to be made for why that we should supplement with certain things. I know omega-3s are very near and dear to you. That's certainly a great example. Vitamin D is another one. Calcium, magnesium, vitamin C. I mean, we could go down the list of things that Americans in particular are either deficient or insufficient on today. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, we're going to learn about a foundational set of micronutrients that you may not have heard that much about. They're health-promoting, they're longevity-supporting, they're ultimately nutrient powerhouses, and that is polysaccharides. You'll get to learn how these powerful nutrients support your body's natural health defenses, and in particular, how they could even be key in the quest to treat and even reverse the progression of neurodegenerative decline. Joining me today for this health discussion is John E. Lewis. He is a PhD and the founder and president of Dr. Lewis Nutrition. Dr. Lewis is the past associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. He has been the principal investigator of over 30 different studies in the research career that he has evaluating the effects of nutrition, dietary supplementation in particular, and exercise on all aspects of human health. He has over 180 peer-reviewed publications to his credit in some of the world's leading scientific journals. Dr. Lewis embodies the model of health by eating a whole food, plant-centered diet for over 26 years. He takes certain key dietary supplements, like the polysaccharides that he'll talk to us about today, and through a rigorous daily exercise training program manages his health. John has a passion for educating others about the value of health, and he's here today to share that passion with all of us. But before I bring him up, remember that this podcast is here as a resource to educate and sometimes even entertain. It is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure any health ailments. There is no patient-provider relationship established between me, your host, or our guests like Dr. John Lewis. With that out of the way, here he is, Dr. John Lewis. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Karina, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to our conversation today. So I just want to get started learning a little bit about you. You know, what really led you on your journey to this whole foods, plant-based, healthy living perspective and even considering supplementation? Well, that's a great question. I would say it goes way back in terms of always being somebody that played sports as a kid, uh, grew up feeling like playing sports was a big deal and always being physically active. I thought it was a big part of my life as a kid. And then as a university student, I got into drug-free competitive bodybuilding after my 
sports careers were over and uh, really got into how the body responds to nutrition, exercise, that type of training. I probably, I would say I overcompensated going down the road of bodybuilding in the sense of being very skinny most of my life and then getting into bodybuilding to try to overcompensate for being a very skinny kid and that my body really responded to that. But I think you know, as we do, we evolve, right? We change over time. And as we age, and especially as we become young adults, we start reflecting and doing sort of an inventory. I really decided that I would never make a living or have a financial basis from bodybuilding. I wasn't ever going to be willing to do drugs that would have allowed me to perhaps do that. I just wasn't willing to take that risk. And so I started shifting my focus more from like a performance orientation to a health orientation. And while for those people out there who are blessed with the ability to make a living in some kind of sport, have that genetic ability, that genetic gift, I mean, obviously nutrition is, or at least should be, I mean, I guess not every single professional athlete focuses so much on nutrition, although that's probably more true today than it was 30 years ago. But compared to those people, the rest of the world ought to be a much bigger source of the people who are looking for answers related to health, which, in my opinion, you get mostly through nutrition. Obviously, exercise is an important piece as well. So I really sort of evolved out of, again, a sports performance into a health orientation perspective on what I was doing in my life. And it just kind of went from there. And then I got into academic research, not really intending to do it, but just as I continued my education and my training, I decided that I wanted to be a researcher and I did that for roughly 20 years. But supplementation was something that was kind of an aspect of my bodybuilding. Back in those days, I was taking creatine and I still take creatine. I think it's a very important thing to take, not just for sports performance, but actually for a lot of different reasons to take creatine. But I didn't really focus too much on anything other than back in those days, say, more than a multivitamin and mineral. And it really didn't dawn on me the importance of supplementing with certain things beyond my diet. I guess you could say that I was one of those people who initially in my life and my career thought you could get everything you need from food. Fast forward to today, 30 some odd years later, and I'm completely the opposite. Now I think that, yes, of course, you cannot just supplement your way to health, but food is difficult. I mean, even if you're buying organic and non-GMO and you're trying to buy local and all these different other strategies that you can implement if you're fortunate enough to be able to do that. A lot of people obviously are not financially, but even if you can do all of that, I think our food still comes up short in certain things that we need that are really important from a supplemental perspective. And if not, then you just have a little expensive poop and urine. I mean, you know, again, depending <laughs> on what your priorities are and how you choose to spend your discretional income, I think that it's important to supplement beyond our food just because of, if for no other reason, the argument you could make is that we have such a polluted world today with our soil, our water, our air not being what it was, well, certainly before the Industrial Revolution and definitely before the turn of the 20th century when we started using so many chemical inputs and then later when we started genetically modifying our crops. And now we have plants that are inferior nutritionally from what they were 100 years ago. So I think there are several arguments to be made for why that we should supplement with certain things. I know omega-3s are very near and dear to you. That's certainly a great example. Vitamin D is another one. Calcium, magnesium, vitamin C. I mean, we could go down the list of things that Americans in particular are either deficient or insufficient on today. 
And again, I think a lot of people are, unfortunately, they're not very conscientious about the decisions they make when it comes to food, right? I mean, I think more people are concerned about, for example, the car they drive, the clothes they wear, the jewelry they have, the home they live in. And then when it comes to food, their elbow bends and their mouth opens and they throw something in there without much thought or consideration. And that's where we have downstream from all of those decisions from the individual to the societal level. That's where we have just epidemics of chronic disease today that I think are very much driven by poor choices in diet. And of course, sedentarism is another key factor. And so we could go down that road as well. I think you've touched on a few things that we unpack. I mean, one of those primary being, you've mentioned the need to to supplement because our foods, our diet is not necessarily getting all of those core nutrients from the foods that we consume. And one of the facts that leads there is simply that the carrot that we consume today doesn't have the same nutrient profile as prior cultivars. And part of that is because we have bred them selectively to be sweeter, to even have a different color. There are white carrots and purple carrots now, and these have different carotenoids in them because the carotenoids are, of course, what give the carrot its beautiful, vibrant orange color. And so even just how we have managed our food supply over the years has shifted. So if you want to make sure you're getting enough vitamin A, you have to be consuming a variety of fruits and vegetables are in that yellow, orange, red perspective, and not necessarily just a carrot. <laughs> so we have some significant shifts. I mean, you see on the picture behind me, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see that I've got a plate of food displayed. And it's arugula with some radish and some tomatoes. Each of these things has powerful plant nutrients in them, and even some polysaccharides. So I'm here today to talk about polysaccharides, and I'd love for us to be able to kind of use this as a demonstration point for why certain nutrients should be looked to in a supplementary way, especially if you're not eating a plant-centered diet that's ripe with whole foods. We could all be eating the way you see this picture behind me and getting some really great nutrients on our plate with every meal. We may not have the same problems. So let's start with polysaccharides. Sure. Well, and to add to your point, I mean, polysaccharides even take it one step further because the work that my colleagues and I have done over, gosh, nearly the last 20 years are from two particular foods. One of them, certainly, that no one eats. I don't know about you. I know no one who eats aloe vera. And then the other one is rice bran, which obviously comes from rice. But most of the world prefers to eat white rice. I think 70 80% of the world eats white rice, which has no rice bran. So these two particular polysaccharides are absolutely the types of nutrients that, again, probably 90-something percent of the people definitely are not eating any aloe vera polysaccharides. And then from the rice bran, again, most of the world is not eating brown rice. So even if they were, probably are not getting enough of the polysaccharide content from that rice bran, from that cup of brown rice anyway. But these polysaccharides, Karina, I mean, we've just, again, demonstrated time and time again in our research laboratory how effective these things are and just how truly pleiotropic their benefits and their activities are. It's really quite astounding. And of course, if you ask someone about the benefits of aloe vera, 99 out of 100 people will say it's a topical purpose, right? Like humans mostly don't even think of using aloe vera orally. They think if you have a sunburn or a cut or a wound, use some aloe vera gel and put that on your skin. That's a nice application for it. 
But I can tell you based on our work that it's far more potent when you consume those polysaccharides after you've stripped the water out. And now you have this concentrated source of these polysaccharides. It's way more beneficial to human health than if you just consume some of these products you see on the market, aloe vera juice or whatever they're referred to. I mean, to me, it's not like you're going to be harmed or hurt by those products. I just think they're basically a waste of money because they're going to give you very little therapeutic benefit compared to a concentrated amount of the polysaccharides in the powders. So let's talk about what polysaccharides are, poly meaning many, and then saccharides, which are water-soluble sugar-like substances, correct? Correct. So I think it's, it's always a good opportunity to educate people about what polysaccharides are in the context of how many years, how many decades has it been now that we've essentially been told by the mass media over and over again that sugar is bad, right? Like, oh, you know, it's bad for you. You can't take sugar. And that's true if you're talking about a certain type of sugar, mostly simple sugars that spike the blood glucose, cause you to have a high insulin response. I'll be the first one to be on the throwing out the high fructose corn syrup from the diet. Anything that any kind of a package that you might consider buying that's got high fructose corn syrup in it, by all means, do not use that type of sugar. But I think what it's important for people to remember is that there are at least two primary characteristics of sugars that really would drive your decision whether or not to use them. The first one is a sugar is not a sugar, meaning the source of the sugar is very important. So we just made the distinction between, again, polysaccharides coming from aloe vera and rice versus a simple sugar coming from corn. So the source of the sugar is very important. And then secondly, of course, that I'm alluding to is the biochemical structure. So how many carbon bonds, the density and the complexity of all of those different molecular connections within the compound are also the second key characteristic. So we have basically, generically speaking, three different types of sugars. We have monosaccharides like fructose and high fructose corn syrup. Then we have disaccharides, a little bit more complex sugars like sucrose. And then we have the poly or oligosaccharides that are the most complex sugars. Again, from things that I mentioned like aloe vera and rice bran. And of course, more commonly people think of like sweet potatoes or all of your different vegetables, your greens, all your different fibrous vegetables, and even beans and lentils as well. So obviously those types of polysaccharides are much different. And again, when you're talking about the complexity of the information, it's almost like trying to categorize a 5D structure. They're so dense with information that they cannot be completely characterized graphically. So it, you're talking about a source of information when, if you want to take it one step further, what do our genes do when they receive information from the environment? And typically that's from our food, right? I mean, we get information that comes in from the air and the water and other things that we drink and even exposures, obviously all those things talk to our genes, but really what the genes listen to the most is the things that we eat. And so this complex coded information in these polysaccharides has actually been shown to be more dense than even in amino acids and fatty acids. So imagine that for a moment. And this is the reason why, I mean, if you want to continue going down this road in biochemistry a little bit, we can, but the information that these polysaccharides contain are just so dense and so complex, and they ultimately help to guide and drive the bioengineering of our cells. And so that's where the genes receive the information from the environment, and then they tell, they guide our cells on how to function. And so ultimately, I mean, we all love a good tasting meal, but essentially this information that we get from putting things into our mouth that ultimately we consume and we metabolize that information is really ultimately what 
I think is reminiscent or is indicative of the term you are what you eat. And that's so true just based on, you know, now what we know through the study of biochemistry and all these different types of nutrients and phytonutrients that, again, direct our genes to then tell ourselves what to do. Expanding on this for a moment, I think that what you're essentially getting at is that when we get the right polysaccharides into our bodies, when we get more of them, we could turn on or turn off certain gene expressions, right? So that that then dictates your health outcomes over longer periods of time. So in the case of someone like myself, who I understand that I have one representation of the APOE4 genome and allele which can mean that I am at a higher likelihood of developing Alzheimer's or dementia or other neurodegenerative issues in my later years. Now, if I eat right, get the right nutrition, get plenty of omega-3s, like with Orlo's polar lipid omega-3s, then I'm going to be less likely to have those activations go on for the development or progression of these sorts of diseases that can accumulate when we don't get the right building blocks throughout our life cycles. Is that a fair assessment of where your understanding is when it comes to these powerful polysaccharides? That's right, exactly. So again, everything that goes into our mouth is so crucial to how we function. And so that's where I was trying to link this idea that, you know, again, most people today have sort of this mindless attitude about what they stick in their mouths, all of their other behaviors. But it's so crucial just to your point of you having this ApoE4 allele, which makes you a little bit more of an elevated risk candidate for dementia or Alzheimer's. And so, again, everything that you're trying to do is to prevent that expression of that allele. And so what you want to do is obviously, you know, send your genes in the other direction, essentially. But the easiest way that you do that is through your nutrition or the simplest way, I should say, in terms of the information that you can load your genes with and obviously exercise proper sleep, stress management, not using tobacco, not using or very much limiting your use of alcohol. There are obviously lots of other behaviors related to all this. But in my opinion, when you look at the vast and enormous amount of research that's been done under, let's just say broadly, nutritional science, to me, there's really nothing else that compares to any other behavior that we can control every day. And, and like you said, to, for your own in terms of your own genetic profile, what you or anyone else would need to do to help to prevent having that type of expression occur later in life. Now, you mentioned alcohol. And so I've got to touch back on a couple of things. I am connected to several neurosurgeons and neurologists, each of whom essentially say that alcohol is just not good for the brain. Like this is not something like no amount of alcohol is good for the brain. And part of this too is that there's this connection between the liver and the brain. And so if we mind our livers and if we support a healthy liver throughout our lives, that our brain will be in a better aging state as we get older as well. Now, at the same time, we also have people like Dr. William Lee, who we've had the pleasure of featuring a few times on this show, who has said plainly, one glass of red wine, preferably organic, or one beer is okay and probably even health promoting in its own way would be more so if it didn't have any alcohol to it, because then you could get the benefits, let's say, of some of the polysaccharides in the wine, but none of the alcohol. What are your thoughts around all of this perspective? And what do you generally caution people to do? This is a great question. And I, I'm certainly, I wouldn't characterize myself as an expert on the literature and alcohol, but it is fascinating at least, and perhaps very discouraging at worst, that 
I'm sure you've read, and um, I'd say going back for the last decade or so, there have been a lot of studies, and of course, we can't enroll humans in clinical trials using alcohol or not. That would never pass an ethics board. But nonetheless, all these large epidemiological and observational studies, granted that have a lot of error, I'm not saying they're the gold standard either, but a lot of these studies in the last decade have been showing even just a little bit of alcohol. We're not talking about binge drinkers or even people that are doing the regular one to two or whatever drinks per day in the evening with dinner. We're just talking like limited, like having a drink or two like every month or so. Some of these studies are showing quite interesting and significant links between what is considered, I think, for anybody who's a drinker, and I'm not, by the way, I haven't touched any alcohol in over a decade now, but drinking like very little amounts of alcohol and actually increasing the risks for different types of cancers, particularly breast cancer in women. So it seems to be going against this notion that, oh, well, drink your red wine, it's got resveratrol, it's got other things in it that are health promoting. But, you know, I think a lot of those studies are flawed too, because they try to tease out the effect of alcohol among all these different behaviors that people are engaging in. So you might find that the person who enjoys his or her drink of alcohol, whether it's red wine or a beer or even a mixed drink or whatever, may also be the same person who's doing lots of other things that are health promoting and health protective. So I don't know that there's enough good research out there to just say that drink your red wine every day. And like you said, organic. I mean, to me, that almost boils down to the alcohol industry trying to take a message where they know they have a product that if you drink it, it potentially can be detrimental in many different ways. We don't talk about all those different things, especially related to accidents, which I think is probably the primary driver of a lot of these early mortalities. But nonetheless, I think the use of alcohol to me, in other words, I think you could get your resveratrol from eating lots of other vegetables and fruits without having to deal with the other effects that may be consistent with taking red wine. And, and again, we're not even talking about drinking a lot of alcohol. We're talking about a fairly minimal amount and still driving your risk of different types of cancer. So for me, like I chose over 10 years ago, no longer to drink. And even then I wasn't drinking that much anyway. I mean, I don't know, literally two or three drinks a year. That was all I was drinking for many years. And I will say, I'll give credit to bodybuilding in the sense that when I was in college and getting into bodybuilding and I would be with most people do in that age, socializing with their friends on the weekends and, you know, we'd be out of the club or something, having a drink or two. I realized that living like that and trying to be a competitive bodybuilder at the same time <laughs> absolutely was no bueno. I mean, it didn't, those kinds of behaviors were not parallel with each other. So it was a pretty easy choice for me to make the decision. I wasn't really going to drink that much anymore. Plus, I never liked yeah, well, people who drink are generally a little puffier too. <laughs> you just don't look as shredded as you want to as a bodybuilder. I would agree with that. I don't know. I never enjoyed the taste of alcohol anyway. I want to bridge this for a minute because there's a researcher. You get the doctors that are on with the resveratrol, even trying to make really high concentrates of it and offer those as products. But there are also polysaccharides present in grapes and also present in grape seeds themselves. And so, you can get extracts of grape seeds that are high in those polyphenols, which are also very health supporting and which have research behind them to benefit your health over the long, long term. Or you can 
also do as I do. And just when you see organic grapes and different varieties that are in season, you can buy them and eat them. (laughs) And you can get some of these benefits from them as well. There's also a very interesting book because we've all heard about the French paradox, right? Like how can French people drink this red wine and eat these brie cheeses and go ahead and have these fatty, rich foods and still have this amazing health and have a lower incidence of heart disease and heart attack and cancers, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they have so many lifestyle compounding factors that are different, like two-hour lunches and more days off per year and better balanced lifestyles, generally speaking. Less so when you're in the big cities, but definitely when you live in the country. And then also, there's this incredible book by Dr. Kate Rombleu, who's out of Canada. She wrote a book called The Calcium Paradox. And she argues that it's not just the resveratrol and red wine, but in fact, even more likely that it has to do with consumption of these cheeses that are fermented and have very high levels of vitamin K2, MK7, like the moustaires and the brie cheeses and things along those lines. And so these individuals in France who are eating this lifestyle are also consuming very high levels of vitamin that actually helps to keep their arteries clear of plaque, essentially, because of how they're eating and their balance of their diet as a whole. So I really like for people to look a little bit more deeply think a little bit more before you jump on the bandwagon of there's this one miracle supplement that is going to solve everything and stimulate my cert one so that I have longer telomeres and things along these lines. We're complex individuals. Health is more than just one focus, but getting to a space where we have balanced diet with deeper nutrition is I think critical for everyone. I would love for you to talk specifically about your research and polysaccharides and really just Tell us everything that you've discovered and the research that you've personally done. Thank you. I'd be happy to. I'll start off with what I consider at this point still in my career, even though I'm no longer full-time in academics for the last six years or so. But the clinical trial that we ran in people with moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease just completely exceeded any of our expectations going in. We were optimistic based on some of the anecdotal work that my primary colleague, Dr. Reg McDaniel, who, by the way, was the person who got me really into all this polysaccharide research and interest. But Dr. McDaniel and I were able to, through the funding that he received, a gift from a family that had lost four members to Alzheimer's. This family decided that they wanted to help him. That turned out to help us since he didn't have an academic position at that time to be able to run this clinical trial. So we used what we termed in the study, in the papers that we published from this study, allopolymannose multinutrient complex. It wasn't just the polysaccharides, although I will tell you that based on the composition of the formula, the, the polysaccharides are truly the linchpin or the most significant aspect of it. But to your point just a moment ago, I, there is no magic bullet, right? So the cells can't dysfunction on polysaccharides. They need lots of other things. And And that's the reason why we utilized a formula in in the study. Sometimes people have criticized us and said, well, you've got this formula of 10 different things in it. How do you know what works? And I'm like, hello, McFly. We don't care about magic bullets. And we're still trying to help people with this tragic disease. So anyway, we ran this trial. We put people on the formula for 12 months, which for people that have a caregiver and have this horrible disease from a conventional medical perspective that has absolutely no efficacious treatment. I mean, the five FDA-proof drugs for dementia, if you're lucky, they'll delay decline for a few months, but then you just continue falling off the cliff. And so we conducted 
the neurocognitive or neuropsychological testing at baseline three, six, nine, and 12 months. And then we drew blood at baseline in 12 months. Unfortunately for us, the funding that we did get was not enough money to do the blood work at three, six, and nine. But anyway, we ran the study and and we had a, I would say, a very skeptical group of colleagues, although they were willing to help us and ethically and scientifically did a very good job of running the study and being very responsible. But we, Dr. Reg and I had a group of people we were dealing with, mostly led by the psychiatrists and then the coordinators that didn't think too much of nutrition research. They were a center where they mostly did drug studies or maybe all drug studies besides ours. And so they were very much into the pharmacological paradigm. They said, well, you guys have money and we've got a lot of patients. We don't really believe nutrition is going to do anything for these folks, but we're willing to work with you. I mean, that was literally the attitude that we got from the staff in the center where we ran the study. And Dr. Reg and I looked at each other like, what in the world? Like, you know what? I mean, healthy skepticism is one thing, but downright putting someone else down is another level to it. But Anyway, we were running the study, and as the study was going, it was interesting because, again, as I mentioned, we were optimistic and we were hopeful, but as the study started going, as we enrolled the first few people, I started getting caregivers calling me in a few months saying, oh, Dr. Lewis, my loved one is now doing things that he or she, in some cases, hasn't done for years. So, you know, I was getting, like, really excited, and my optimism was starting to be, I guess you could say, fulfilled because I was seeing the results of it, and even the staff even I was getting phone calls and emails from the staff saying, I can't believe what Mr. Smith is now doing. He hasn't said this or done this or acted this way. And again, in some cases in years. And one of the anecdotes was the oldest lady we had in the study. She was 93. I believe she had Alzheimer's for like 11 or 12 years. You know, very old person, very sick person. When she started at baseline, she could not walk and she said nothing. I mean, she literally was just like, a piece of furniture sitting on a piece of furniture. And then when she came in for the three-month evaluation, she actually walked into the center that day and she called one of the coordinators by his first name and he started bawling like a baby. I mean, he could not believe that this lady actually could remember his name. And so we got all sorts of amazing anecdotes like that. And then fast forward a couple of years later after the study has concluded and we're working on the data and we're starting to analyze it, and so, again, I was feeling very hopeful that we had something that was going to be unique. And so it turned out that at 9 and 12 months, we had clinically and statistically significant improvement in cognition. Now, Karina, I can tell you, and this was according to the ADAS-COG, which is widely considered to be the gold standard of assessing cognition, in, particularly in dementia, but cognition in general, but specifically in dementia. And the neuropsychologist said she could not believe what was happening at she had worked there at the center for 15 years, was doing all the cognitive assessments. She said she'd never seen anything like it. But I say that clinically and statistically significant, very purposefully, because a lot of times in research, you can have something that's statistically significant, but clinically or practically, it's irrelevant or it doesn't have any meaning. Yeah, you might have been able to move some markers with regard to plaque or something or to cholesterol, but it didn't have a health outcome that was significant. So in this case, clinical significance in terms of cognition was just, again, I mean, we were so thrilled. I literally felt like I didn't, but I literally felt like tears were coming to my eyes. And I always get chill bumps every time I tell the story just because of how meaningful it is to me and all the people that I've worked with now since this last almost 20 year period. But 
in addition to that, so you have the cognitive improvement on the clinical side, and then physiologically or biochemically on that side, what do you have to support it? Well, several things. First of all, we reduced inflammation according to TNF-alpha and VEGF. So that was very important. Typically, our paper was probably the first one that published that kind of an effect in Alzheimer's disease. Those markers are typically looked at either in heart disease or cancer. We showed a very nice improvement in the CD4 to CD8 ratio, which is your ratio or your relationship between your helper cells and your cytotoxic cells. And so that's not just important for people with Alzheimer's, that's important for all of us. And we want that ratio to relatively be as high as possible as we go through life. All right. So let's stop here for a second because I want to point something out. You've basically said that by giving them this regimen over the course of nine months to a year, that you were seeing significant reductions in inflammation and also in the body's ability to detoxify. That's what it sounded like to me. And so I just wanted to be clear and help people understand what it means in the end, as opposed to just the acronyms. Is that a fair assessment or did I get something wrong there? Well, I don't know if I use the word detoxification, but I would say lowering inflammation and then modulating or improving overall immune function. Those are the terms that I would use. And then in addition to that, we also showed just under a 300% increase in adult stem cell production according to CD14 cells. So when you take all of that in combination and look at this picture together, now granted, unfortunately, we didn't have the money to do imaging studies. And I don't know, 15 years ago, we started this study, I think at the end of 2008 or early 2009, I'd have to go back and double check my notes. And then we published the first paper in 2013. It's hard to believe that's been a decade ago, but I know the imaging would be very good today if and when we have the funding to do another study and advance our research. But again, when you look at the clinical side, I mean, unless you're the biggest skeptic in the world and you just say, oh, well, they just had a spontaneous healing. That's a term that people typically throw around when they have no better explanation for why somebody got better, not just from Alzheimer's, but basically any type of disease. But Again, unless you're the biggest skeptic in the world and ignore all the rest of the data, perhaps one explanation. Our explanation is when you lower inflammation and you improve overall immune function combined with increasing adult stem cell production, the only thing that makes sense to us is that increase in adult stem cells migrated to the brain. Neuroplasticity is obviously generally well accepted today. I don't know, there may be a few people out there that still don't believe in that, but we do know that the brain can regenerate itself, not in necessarily every part of the brain, but in certain parts of the brain. The only thing that makes sense to us is why in the world did these people, again, that were with moderate to severe disease, these were not mild cognitive impairment or mild severity. These were the sickest people. And I didn't mention that they were also 79.9 years of age on average. So not only very sick, very old people. And oh, by the way, they didn't just have Alzheimer's. They had hypertension. They had dyslipidemia. They had depression. They had diabetes. These things might be related, you know. <laughs> Yet since systemic inflammation does so many terrible things to our bodies. And I've spent a fair amount of time reading on this topic, in particular, just inflammation of the brain and how we can work to reduce it. And really, the fundamentals come down to reducing consumption of processed foods, increasing consumption of very nutrient-dense polyphenol-containing foods. People say the Mediterranean diet, right, as a for instance. But what is in a Mediterranean diet? You unpack it and you start to see high levels of omega-3s that reduce your body's systemic inflammation. 
you see more plant foods, more salads, more olives and things like that too, right? You might have a little bit of couscous, but it makes up a part of the plate, not the whole plate, like a giant bowl of pasta, right? And so we're just eating differently and we're practicing different habits. I think really that's the key. Like we should be sitting down to enjoy a meal that is a pleasant experience that has a rainbow of colors to it, hopefully. So you're enjoying the senses of consumption and then that has the types of nutrients that we need in a daily way. And if if we ate this way our entire lives, we probably wouldn't bioaccumulate just the really terrible systemic issues that we end up with, both inflammation-wise, waistline-wise, toxin-wise, etc. So it makes sense to me. Now, I understand the protocol that you've developed is something that you have actually made available through Dr. John Lewis Nutrition. And you did send me some of the stuff. So I took a look at it personally. I've consumed the capsules and the powder, which isn't too difficult to do. And I've integrated it into my supplementary regimen for a couple of reasons. One, the research that you mentioned is very compelling. And I hope that you'll provide me direct links to the studies so that I can include them with show notes. And two, I have a personal connection to Alzheimer's. I do have that one representation, but my grandmother was diagnosed in her 60s with Alzheimer's disease and manifested personally in a really strange way. I remember at the time I was about 20 years old, 21, something like that, sitting down for a barbecue at my father's house on 4th of July. And we're all enjoying some time outside. The barbecue is going, he's grilling some eggplant and he's got some veggies on there. He's getting the meat ready and everything, right? Doing some kebabs of this. My dad's an expert barbecuer, right? And all of a sudden, with her glass of wine in hand, she just looks at my dad, who's her son, and says, and how are you related to the family? And this is my first exposure. He'd seen a couple things that were a little off before that. And he just looks at her and he kind of chuckles and he goes, I'm your son. And she says, oh, stop. You're far too old to be my son. Now, this is obviously somebody who has had a break in their brain somewhere. And now she's experiencing life thinking that she's probably in her 30s at that point with a young son at home that's six years old as opposed to a 50-year-old man, right? Now, I'm sure many of the listeners of this podcast have had a similar experience at some point in their lives with a loved one because we've gotten to a point where this disease is really overtaking our largely aging population. People are living longer, and unfortunately, their health span really dramatically declines in their last few years and sometimes last few decades because of neurodegenerative disease and neurodegenerative issues. Is it your belief at this point that these types of diseases are actually avoidable? Oh, no question about it. I mean, I think, I don't know how many of your listeners were fans, are fans of Jack LaLanne. I mean, that guy was an inspiration to me. That guy... I forget how old he was, 93, 94, when he died. And up until the last two weeks of his life, I think he died of a lung infection. He was still working out every day. He was swimming, lifting weights. I think on his 80th birthday, he pulled a boat like he was uh, swimming in the San Francisco Bay or something like that. I mean, there was always something with Jack LaLanne. Always doing something. I mean, what an amazing life that man lived. And of course, he's one of many. I mean, but he's probably the most famous that I can think of. And that just, I think when people have this inevitability of chronic disease mentality, then you are, as we say, mind over matter. You're telling your body you're going to become sick. And so it's so important that we don't have that type of self talk. And I've just seen 
nutrition, especially these polysaccharides, this formula that I've been working with, do so many amazing things. And as to your disclaimer earlier in the show, we don't, we're not talking about treating disease here. We're talking about providing the raw materials that it, the body needs to repair and restore itself. But absolutely, I mean, I don't think chronic disease is just part of aging at all. I firmly believe it's not. I mean, I'm living it. I hope that my life, regardless of how many years I live, I'll still be functional the day that I die, much like Lelaine was. And and so that's my goal. And obviously, we have no cure for mortality at this point. <laughs> it's so unfortunate that we have a society that's just wrecked by chronic disease when it doesn't have to be that way. I have to say I'm in complete agreement. And I feel like I need to make an introduction for you, Dr. John Lewis, to Dr. Joseph Maroon who's an octogenarian himself and who is still competing in the Kona Triathlon, the Ironman, each year. He jokes that he is winning his class, but he might be the only person racing in the class. He also says his goal in life is to die young as old as possible. And I think that he's living that reality. As a neurologist and neurosurgeon, I think your research would be right up his alley. And I personally think that together you might be able to advance this a little bit more. Now, I understand how hard it is to be out there and working to build a supplement company to support the health of people and really reach them. What can you tell people about how they can connect with you and the company? And if they're interested in giving this product and this perspective a whirl, what would you say to those individuals? Thank you for that question. Well, anyone can find me at main website, which is drlewisnutrition.com. That's D-R, no period, Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, nutrition.com. And then all the typical social media channels, Dr. Lewis Nutrition through Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and a little bit on TikTok, although politically that may not be the best place to <laughs> anymore for Americans. But I have a lot of information there about my life, my research. You can find lots of articles, lots of videos, and obviously geared toward daily brain care, which is the product that grew out of the research from the University of Miami from my academic experience that I really only touched on one study that there's actually a lot more that, that I could go into. We don't have time for that today. But yeah, drlewisnutrition.com is the best place people can find me if they want to learn more about all the research that my colleagues and I conducted, daily brain care. As you mentioned, we have it both in powder and capsule form. We have other products that will be coming down the pike as well as we continue growing. But you can find my contact information there. I have actually a phone number, email, anybody that would contact me for more information. I'm happy to engage with those folks. Well, very good. And to that point, I would like to remind people that this type of supportive nutrition is very good in combination with a really high quality omega-3 in the polar lipid form for better absorption to your brain, because you can get that now from algae or low nutrition, primary sponsor for this podcast. I mean, we bring you this show each and every month specifically to help you really ultimately improve your health and get access to great nutrition information. Omega-3s and polysaccharides, they can work together to create better brain health for the long term. And so I really think that these two things can go together quite nicely. Now, I want to thank you again, John, for your time. I like to end the show with a resource of some sort for our audience. So if you were to give people either a tip, something that they could change in their lives today to support their health for the long term, what would that be? Or if you had a magic wand to wave and change one thing about health and nutrition, what would it be? So you could answer either of those or maybe both. Wow, those are loaded questions. Well, I think 
we didn't touch on the subject today, but vitamin D, you know, is such an important, it's not even a vitamin, as you know, it's a pro-hormone, but we have 70% of Americans are either insufficient or deficient in vitamin D. Man, just take vitamin D. Even if you don't have a lot of resources, vitamin D is a very cheap supplement. And guess what? You don't even need a supplement. Just go out in the sun and spend 15, 20 minutes, three or four times a week in the sun. Take off as many of the clothes as you feel comfortable and let as much of your skin get exposed to sun as much as you can. Vitamin D answers so many problems that we're dealing with, again, in these chronic diseases that we've mentioned. So that would be, to me, a very simple recommendation that doesn't really require a lot of effort or money or time to help your health. As far as waving a magic wand, man, the, th- the thing that I would do immediately is get rid of all of this lobbying that we we call lobbying in the United States. Everywhere else in the world, we call it corruption, but we have way too much lobbying when it comes to big pharma and big food and big agriculture, how we're squeezing our country in terms of all this emphasis on the profit margin or the profit motive at the expense of our health. And it To me, it all boils down to too much lobbying that's going on in the relationship between our Congress and industry and how that is squeezing out, especially like the small farmers and people that actually grow our food and the way the dynamics of all that has changed. We need a total change in the way we're doing government. And I think that starts with getting rid of lobbying and helping people to better understand the value of food and health as opposed to just waiting till people get sick and then throwing medications at them and then going down this really tragic road that I saw many of my relatives go down. And so that would be my magic wand like yesterday, if possible. Well, that really did come out of left field. But I have to say, I tend to agree with you that ultimately, when we do let rampant lobbying (laughs) occur, then what we get is products with special interests. So there were moments in time where lobbyists tried to even take away the ability for you to go to the store and get that vitamin D or that omega-3, make everything a drug so that, guess what, drug companies can profit and you have less access to the healthy things that support you without getting a prescription for it. So ultimately, I think we all are aligned with wanting to have better access to healthy products. And yeah, I mean... I don't know if we can get rid of lobbying today, but I would love to see that happen myself too. Listen, thank you so much for joining me today, John. This has been my distinct pleasure. Now, I want to go ahead and remind our audience that we do have some special promotions going through the holiday season at OrloNutrition.com. We're absorbing the cost of shipping for the entire rest of the year, and we still are running our Tested by You program. And that means that you can go ahead and come to OrloNutrition.com sign up for a subscription to get our DHA omega-3 or prenatal DHA products. And you'll receive a test to verify your levels of omega-3s today. And then again, after four months of supplementation, because it's our belief that you can modify your consumption patterns and see a real change and up to three times better absorption, tiny little pill, just take a couple a day and see where you're at over four months. Ultimately, this can help you make decisions then about whether you need to make additional lifestyle changes to optimize your levels of omega-3s. You can do that also with things like vitamin D, CoQ10. There are several different tests that you can take to verify where you're at. This is actually something that comes with the blood spot test when you do get it. If you subscribe to test it by you, there is a little spot for the omega-3. And if you decided that you wanted to add a couple of other tests there, I believe it's vitamin D and CoQ10. We don't cover the cost for the vitamin D or CoQ10. We don't own that company, but 
if to your point, Dr. Lewis, they also wanted to check their vitamin D, they could just pay a little extra and with that same finger prick test, verify their levels of vitamin D today. So I think I'll end it on that note. Do you have any closing thoughts? Just thank you again, Karina, for having me on your show. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to if you ever want to have me back, I'd be happy to do that and help people got something out of the information that we shared related to polysaccharides. I think it's probably one of the most important nutrient most people have never heard of. But remember, it it all comes down to the source. And so anything that you can get from uh, whether it's my product or some other competitive product, that's fine, too. But these polysaccharides can do amazing things for people, and I would encourage them to strongly consider utilizing them if they're not already. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Lewis. Thank you. What an informative discussion today with Dr. John Lewis of drlewisnutrition.com. Now, it's not often that I personally encounter another supplement company that I feel is so focused on the greater good. So I just want to personally say that I respect what he's doing. I respect the research behind it. And I wish that this product had been on the market back in the days when my grandmother suffered from her steep dementia and decline. I know this is a personal issue for many people, and you may, like me, be experiencing the ravages of something like this in your personal life with those connected to you as they enter their final years and decades. We all need to be seeking a better health span, a better experience living. We should know what it feels like to be vibrant, healthy, and lively, even in our later days. And getting the nutrition right in the very beginning is, of course, the ideal. But you can make changes today that get you there tomorrow and the next day and the next day. You can make changes today that benefit you more with time. We see that time and again with supplementation through things like omega-3s and the accumulative benefit that people get with time. So I will remind people once again, they should go and check out the Tested by You program because it's our belief that this can really be life-changing for you. And we do have a bonus discount. You can use the coupon code NWC for an additional 10% off at checkout. And through the holiday season of 2023, we are covering shipping costs. So there's no minimum for that. I encourage you to go check that out today. Listen, I hope that all of you will do me a solid and raise a cup of your favorite beverage with me as I say my closing words today. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or. 